The year was 1474. The courtroom in Basel, Switzerland was packed. The gathered crowd looked upon the defendant in such a rabid frenzy that it seemed the entire town was bordering on a state of panic. All the defendant had to say in defense was... The suspect was a rooster, or depending on who you asked, a monstrous cockatrice or basilisk, a grotesque two-legged dragon or serpent with a rooster's head. At least that was the general consensus and the primary argument of the prosecution. Why was the town of Basel so distressed over this rooster? Because it had committed the crime of laying an egg. We humans have been putting animals on trial probably as long as we've been putting one another on trial. This famous case from Switzerland is one of the earliest accounts we have, but it's far from the only one. Today we're going to explore some of these cases as well as find out what happened to the unfortunate Swiss rooster, which probably wasn't a rooster, and definitely wasn't a basilisk in 1474. Heads up, things don't work out for most of the animals we'll be talking about. In many cases, cruel and unusual punishments were included in the sentencing. If harm to animals is something you have a hard time hearing about, you might want to skip this one. I will give you a warning right before things get messy for the defendants, but I just wanted to let you know right out of the gate that in most of the cases we're examining, things didn't end well for the four-legged, two-legged, and, in one case, no-legged defendants. With that, let's head out to explore the history of animals on trial. I'm your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. The chicken-slash-rooster-slash-basilisk was really up against it in 1474, because typically, roosters don't lay eggs. Hens lay eggs. So when this rooster was accused of laying an egg, it was considered a serious offense. For the townsfolk of Basel in the 15th century, the explanation as to why a rooster could lay an egg at all had to be a supernatural one. It was determined the offending animal had to be a monster. The people of Basel were correct that a rooster cannot lay an egg. But if this rooster-looking egg layer really did lay an egg almost 600 years ago, there actually is a scientific explanation for it. According to National Geographic, around one in every 10,000 chickens are born as gynandomorphs, meaning they have both male features and female features. A study on gynandomorph chickens conducted at the University of Edinburgh discovered that these birds have a mixture of both male and female cells, though usually only one reproductive organ, either testes or ovaries. The cause usually occurs during the early development of an organism. Here's a bunch of science distilled into one paragraph. A zygote, the result of the fusion of two gametes, or parental material, consists of only a few cells. Sometimes one of those cells doesn't split its sex chromosomes in the most typical way. This can result in one cell having chromosomes that cause male development and one that cause female development. 
It's also believed that gynandomorphism can be caused in chickens due to double fertilization. This phenomenon occurs in most, probably all, bird species. If you Google this, you'll find some incredible looking pictures of birds that look half male and half female, right down the middle, especially in cases where sexual dimorphism is typically obvious. The most striking, at least for me, was a photo taken of a cardinal that displayed the characteristics of both sexes perfectly on each side. I'll put a link to the article with the photo and the story of how biologists from Western Illinois University tracked this bird for two years in Rock Island, Illinois. Although the cardinal spotted by researchers is an obvious gynandomorph, it's not always easy to spot one. Not all gynandomorphs are split right down the middle. Some are harder to detect. So, from what I read, it is possible for a hen that has outward male characteristics making it look like a rooster to lay an egg. It's incredibly rare, so it's understandable that if this really is what occurred in 1474, when the townspeople of Basel saw this, they completely freaked out. They didn't know there was a possible scientific explanation, so they deferred to a supernatural one. The egg-laying rooster-looking chicken was put on trial and found guilty for the, quote, heinous and unnatural crime of laying an egg, unquote. The sentence? Death. The means of execution? And this is where I tell you things don't work out for the rooster. Death by being burned alive. The execution of the rooster-slash-hen-slash-basilisk was taken quite seriously and in the same solemn manner as a human execution. A huge crowd turned out for the spectacle. It was never that hard to find an audience for an execution, and the condemned animal was indeed burned alive. It was a foul, extra-crispy end. Putting a chicken on trial may seem silly here in the 21st century, but cases of animals on trial are sprinkled throughout history, especially in the European Middle Ages. There are a few problems with the sources for these cases. According to Sarah McDougall, associate professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, many of the sources we have on animal trials and executions are from 19th century scholars who didn't often clarify where they were getting their information from. Not all of the stories we have can be verified, and it's likely some of them never even happened. For example, McDougall states that one of the more famous animal trial cases, which involved a bunch of rats being put on trial for an infestation, was completely made up just to defame the lawyer who had supposedly defended them. But although some of these cases can't be verified, some can, and typically, especially for cases that occurred centuries ago, they tended to go one of two ways. One, a large animal, like a chicken, a bull, or a pig, would be tried and found guilty of something in a secular case, often murder or maiming a human, and they would be executed, sometimes exiled, sometimes tortured, and then executed. Or two, smaller animals, especially where there were multiple offenders of, say, beetles, rats, or weevils, would be excommunicated by a church tribunal in ecclesiastical cases, making them free game for extermination. The most exhaustive tome we have on animal trials comes from E.P. Evans, who wrote a 1906 compilation of cases called The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals. 
In it, Evans listed out 196 cases that occurred in 14 different countries. Evans claims that animals were excommunicated by a religious body before they were exterminated in order to make people feel better about killing them. Evans stated that since the animals causing an infestation or the destruction of a crop were considered to be God's creatures, it could be argued the devastation they caused was part of a divine plan. Therefore, destroying them could have been interpreted as an act against God's will. In these cases, the offending species would be condemned and or excommunicated, alleviating any guilt or divine wrath upon the humans that would then terminate the creatures. One example of this occurred in France in 1480, just a few years after the infamous rooster-slash-hen-slash-basilisk trial. This time, the criminals didn't have a leg to stand on. Literally because they were slugs. And according to Atlas Obscura, they were ruining some otherwise pleasant estate grounds under the jurisdiction of the Cardinal Bishop of Autun in France. To get rid of the destructive slugs, the Cardinal Bishop ordered a daily procession on the estate to be carried out for three consecutive days. During these processions, the slugs were told they could either end their diabolical infestation by leaving the estate grounds of their own volition, or be cursed. This, in the mind of those who would be exterminating the slugs, meant the animals had been given a fair chance to do the right thing and leave of their own accord. But these were slugs, so as you can imagine, the processions were lost on them, which meant they were free game for extermination. There are quite a few similar stories concerning vermin of nearly every type, but animals far larger than slugs and chickens were accused of any number of crimes, including, in this next trial, espionage. There's no exact date for this next story, but there is a window of time. Legend holds everything unfolded during the Napoleonic Wars, sometime between 1803 and 1815. On one particularly dreary day, a storm began to brew one as tumultuous as the times the people of Hartlepool, England, were living in. This storm was so violent that the French ship sailing off the coast had no chance of surviving. It sank, and every single one of its crew went with it, all save for one. The ship's mascot, a monkey, washed ashore, the sole survivor of that dreadful shipwreck. We don't know the exact species of monkey, because the people of Hartlepool were not familiar with monkeys. They didn't quite know what to make of this animal, or perhaps this ugly man that had clung to life while all their peers had met untimely deaths beneath the waves of Hartlepool Bay. And they weren't quite sure what to do with it. They tried talking to this curious, hairy thing, but all they were met with in reply were strange chattering sounds. Since this strange creature had washed ashore from a French ship, its chattering was mistaken for French. This, the townfolk believed, meant they had a French spy on their hands. The trial, if there was one of any real note, did not last long. The monkey was convicted of being a spy sent from Napoleon's France. Its sentence, this is where I tell you things don't work out in the monkey's favor, the poor, undoubtedly confused creature was hanged as a spy on the very beach where they found it. Or so the story goes. There is very little proof of this particular animal trial ever taking place. 
According to the BBC, 14 ships sank in Hartlepool Bay around this same time. All records indicate every one of them were English ships, most fishing or merchant vessels headed for ports in England or Scotland. Nonetheless, many citizens of Hartlepool believe this story is true, and it has become a huge part of local lore. The town's football club's mascot is a monkey, appropriately named Hangus, and the whole ordeal has been the focus of songs, books, a play, and even a graphic novel. But how did this story become so legendary if it didn't actually happen? Some believe it evolved out of a song written in 1855 by a touring Victorian entertainer named Ned Corvin, who liked to create songs about whatever town he happened to be in. When he was in Hartlepool, he wrote a song about a monkey mistaken as a French spy. Many of the phrases in the song were very reminiscent of a similar tune written about a baboon in 1825. The story is also similar to a tale from 1772 from the town of Bottom, where the townsfolk were reported to have hanged a monkey, the sole survivor of a shipwreck, so they could legally claim salvage rights to the debris. So it's possible this animal trial never actually happened. Or it did, and no one can seem to prove it. Either way, the story of the French monkey hanged as a spy has survived for a couple of centuries now, and has become a much-loved legend for the people of Hartlepool. Finn Caldwell, one of the producers of a play based on the legend, was interviewed by the BBC. When asked about whether or not he believed the story, he said, quote, The story is valid in its own right and has its own power. Whether it actually happened or not is maybe not so important, unquote. Whether it did or did not, Hartlepool's monkey is real, at least in legend. At the very least, it's a good story. Though the trial of the hanged monkey, if it occurred, was likely short, some animal trials could take just as long as human trials, with some lasting for months. According to an article from JSTOR, during an official animal trial, everyone involved, the judge, lawyers, counselors, executioners, witnesses, etc., took the case as seriously as they would any human trial. Today, it's common for us to surround ourselves with dogs, cats, and other household pets, animals we keep around for companionship. But back when you couldn't just head to your local grocery store for a steak or a nice rotisserie chicken, we surrounded ourselves with the animals we would keep around for food or work purposes. This created more opportunity for humans to be injured by those animals. When that happened, a court of law was often needed to intervene on behalf of the owner, the animal, and the victim. Such was the case for a sow and her six piglets in the winter of 1457. The scene of this crime was in Savigny, France. Many of the animal trials that occurred during the European Middle Ages involved pigs. In this case, a sow, surrounded by her six piglets, attacked Jean Martin, a five-year-old boy. We don't know why the boy was attacked. Some sows can be fiercely protective of their piglets, so perhaps she thought the boy was a threat. What we do know is that the boy died of his wounds inflicted by the pig. One account I found even stated that she began to eat him before witnesses intervened. 
There were numerous witnesses to the attack, and soon afterwards the sow, all six of her piglets, and their owner, Jean Bailey, were imprisoned for a month while they awaited trial. There were three lawyers in all, two acting for the prosecution, one for the defense of the pigs and their owner. Somewhere around a dozen witnesses were called. The judge decided that, while the pig's owner was guilty of negligence and should have kept a closer eye on his animals, the fault for little Jean's death lay squarely on the pigs. The owner faced no punishment for the death of the child. It was also ruled that the sow had been the sole killer. Since there was no direct evidence that the piglets had engaged in the attack, they were absolved of any guilt and released. The sow was found guilty of murder. She was sentenced to death by hanging. We have numerous examples like this from centuries ago, but animal trials didn't stop with the European Middle Ages, and they extended far beyond the borders of Europe. In 1916, an elephant named Mary was advertised as the, quote, largest living land animal on Earth. She wasn't. Far from it, actually. But that's how Charlie Sparks, the owner of Sparks' world-famous show's circus, promoted her. Mary was a 30-year-old Asiatic elephant, weighing in at 5 tons. Sparks claimed she could play 25 different tunes on musical horns, and that she was the lead pitcher for the circus baseball team. Today, though the use of animals in circuses still has many detractors, Circuses in the United States must meet the requirements of care set by the Animal Welfare Act. In 1916, this was not the case. Clearly, Mary was mishandled. This is obvious when we examine the credentials, or lack thereof, of her handler. His name was Red Eldridge. He was a homeless man who had recently landed a job as a hotel clerk. Though unqualified, somehow Eldridge was hired as Mary's new handler. His time on the job lasted exactly one day. The day after he was hired, Eldridge was riding on Mary's back at a show in Sullivan County, Tennessee, during the Elephant Parade. Mary was the star, so she was in the lead. There are several different accounts of what happened next. One witness said Mary reached down with her trunk to grab a watermelon rind. When she did this, Eldridge prodded her behind the ear with a hook. When he did this, Mary flew into a rage, grabbed Eldridge off her back with her trunk, and threw him. She then stepped on his head, crushing it in an instant. Another account says she lifted Eldridge in the air ten feet, then smashed him to the ground after which she, quote, with the full force of her beastly fury is said to have sunk her giant tusks entirely through his body, unquote. After that, she trampled him, then kicked his lifeless body into the crowd. In all accounts, Red Eldridge was killed by Mary the Elephant. That second account seems problematic and probably greatly exaggerated because most Asiatic elephants lack tusks. While all African elephants, both male and female, have tusks, only some male Asiatic elephants have them. Also, in the surviving photo of Mary I found, it doesn't look at all like she has tusks. 
A promotional poster for Spark's world-famous show Circus, I found, does have an illustration of Mary with tusks, but that looks very different than the photo. Asiatic female elephants can have tushes, which look like very small tusks, so Mary definitely could have had those, but they would have been much smaller than the large tusks we tend to associate with the much larger African elephants, or the giant tusks described in that second account. So we should be a bit suspicious of the account saying she ran Eldridge's body through with her tusks in a violent, murderous rage. What happened to Mary next is horrendously sad. So, fair warning. Eyewitness accounts say Mary began to calm down after killing her handler. The crowd, however, did not. First, Hench Cox, a blacksmith, fired his gun at Mary, hitting her five times. The bullets didn't phase her tough hide. Next, the sheriff shot Mary with his 45, which took a few chips of skin out of her hide, but didn't do much damage. It became obvious quickly that if they were going to kill the now-wounded, confused, and terrified Mary, they needed something more damaging than a few bullets. In this case, it seemed they went ahead and just skipped the trial and went right to the sentencing. The circus owner, Charlie Sparks, decided to have Mary executed in public the following day. Deciding just how they were going to do it took some brainstorming. The first couple suggestions were dismissed as being too cruel. Those were to either have her dismembered by pulling her apart with opposing railroad engines, or having her crushed to death between two engines facing one another. In the end, they decided to hang her by placing a chain around her neck and hauling her into the air via a derrick car, which acted like a giant crane. 2,500 people watched as Mary was cruelly hanged. I call it cruel because they had to try twice before she finally died. They dumped her body into a grave they dug with a steam shovel. She now lies in an unmarked grave somewhere in Irwin, Tennessee. The execution of Mary the Elephant was worse than I've described here. I decided to leave out some of the more traumatic details because I wish I hadn't read them, and I didn't want to put them into your mind. It's all online, so if you're curious, I'll put the link in my show notes, as always. There is a photo of Mary hanging from the Derek car, and that'll be the first thing that pops up if you Google her story. It's awful, so I wanted to give you a heads up in case you did decide to research this one for yourself. I feel like I can't leave you with nothing but horrifically ending animal trials, so this last one actually has a better ending. Still not great, but better. And it also shows that animal trials still take place, because this next piece of history happened in 2004 in Kazakhstan. A brown bear named Katya attacked two people near a campsite where she was caged as an attraction after she was abandoned by a circus. She grabbed the leg of an 11-year-old boy who wandered too close to her cage when he was throwing food at her. Later that same year, a drunk man walked up to her cage and tried to shake her paw. He suffered severe injuries, but like the 11-year-old earlier that year, survived. Despite the warning signs, the fact that she was caged in a small enclosure, and the obvious bad decisions made by the two humans involved, both incidents were blamed entirely on Katya the bear. She was found guilty of assault and sentenced to serve time in a human prison. 
Authorities did try finding a zoo for her first, but none would take her due to her aggressive behavior. So, for the next 15 years, Katya the Bear served her prison sentence at the UK-161-2 penal colony. She served alongside 730 other inmates, many of whom were incarcerated for extremely violent crimes. She had her own cell and a pool, and was cared for by the other inmates. Over the years, she became docile, and the inmates grew to love Katya. The prison even erected a statue of her outside of its walls. Turns out, prison was a better place for Katya than her cage near the campground had been. She spent time in close quarters with other inmates, played, ran, and relaxed in her pool. The other prisoners would bring her treats like apples, cookies, and other sweets, and she seemed to be a comforting companion on the otherwise strict prison grounds. Eventually, after 15 years of time served, a small zoo agreed to take Katya in 2019. She now lives in what is described as almost natural conditions. She now also has three other bears to pass the time with, and is apparently thriving. So, at least this one sort of worked out. This was a depressing episode to research, much of the time because we can be just as hard on animals as we are to one another but we can also be as good to them as we can be to one another. In the cases we talked about today, it seemed like animals were found guilty of behaving the way they naturally behave. Some were provoked, and some were misunderstood. For a long time, we have tried bringing human law and order to the natural world. But the natural world doesn't always fit into the reality we construct for ourselves. Sometimes, it seems we tried and executed animals for displaying behaviors we saw reflected in our own humanity. And in a way, it was like we were putting the animalistic part of ourselves on trial. It's easy to look back at all of these incidents and think about how archaic they seem, how silly we would think it now to put a rooster on trial or curse a bunch of slugs. It makes me wonder what, centuries from now, those looking back at us will see as utterly ridiculous. What boorish thing we will be tried for in the eyes of future generations. Whatever it is, I'm hoping we've come far enough to earn a verdict of not guilty. Thank you so much for listening to the history of animals put on trial. It was a weird one. But if you're still here, you probably like weird things. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Sound effects and background music were licensed through Envato Elements, theme songs from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, go make some history.